0: الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له أن محمدًا عبده ورسوله. All so praise is due to Allah, and success is ultimately for the pious. And the enmity of Allah is on those who are oppressed. I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad is the last messenger of Allah. title the best of generations, taken from a well known hadith in which Prophet Muhammad said, The best of mankind is my generation, then those that follow them, and then those that follow them. The statement of Prophet Muhammad is a statement of guidance for us regarding our implementation of Islam, our implementation and understanding of Islam. Allah had said. Specifically regarding that generation but also including all generations of muslims كُنْتُمْ خَيْرَ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ لِلنَّاسِ تَعْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْعَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْتَرِ فَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ You are the best nation extracted from the generations of mankind, because you command the good and forbid the evil and you believe in Allah. Prophet Muhammad's statement that his companion were the rest of generations is clarified in the Quran by what it is that made them the best of generations. They know from the surah that they their faith, their practice was built over thirteen years in Mecca, followed by another ten years the period of Medina, and it is from that foundation that they took Islam to the corners of the earth. In comparison to the nations around them, they were in equipped militarily, Their weapons were not made of the best, of iron or steel. Their armor was rare. Their animals, donkeys, two horses, and camels. And they were not equipped with the major instruments of war like catapults and. These are the types of instruments that have already been developed in Rome, Greece, Persia. Yet, when this raggedy bag of Muslims, small in number, weak in equipment, met these mighty foes, we know historically that they vanquished them. They defeated them, sent them running back on their heels. What was it that made that possible? That we today, in spite of our huge numbers and resources that are available to us, cannot emulate. It was. Fundamentally, their faith. They were the best of examples for us in terms of faith. Their faith drove them to actions that our faith doesn't drive us to. This is the difference. Because of that, Prophet Muhammad defined them as the best of generations. They are the example for us to follow in all walks of life. In order to further emphasize their importance, taking into account their fallibility. Prophet Muhammad said, Lassa subhu, Ash'ari, don't curse my companions. Why people might curse the companions? Because they made mistakes. They were not infallible. And those who came after due to their observance of their mistakes, may be tempted to curse them, speak ill of them. So Prophet said, don't curse my companions, don't speak ill of my companions. Because if one of you were to give in charity, the equivalent of Mount Uhud in gold, it would not equal a handful or two of what they gave. The sacrifices which they made cannot be equaled by us. And as such, in spite of the mistakes which they did make, as human beings, we have to respect them for their sacrifice.
1: Furthermore,
0: we depend on them for Islam, which is a key concept what we know of Islam is what they conveyed to us.
1: All aspects
0: of Islam, including the Qur'an, they are the ones who conveyed it to us. So if we think ill of them, if we curse them, then we have nothing. We have nothing. We have no Quran, and we have no Islam. And that is exactly what happened to the Shiites. Exactly. They cursed the companions. They claimed that all of them except for three or four apostates. So Islam is what is defined by the Imams, or this one or the other one, their own individuals, and you will find in their writings talk about mushaf the true Qur'an, which is how many times bigger than the Qur'an that we have, and which contains no verses from the Qur'an which we have. A secret cry. Why? What is this a product of? The product of cursing the companions. Because you can't curse them on one hand and then at the other hand say they gave us the revelation from Rasulullah. You can't do so. So, by cursing them, they became obliged to deny the validity of the Quran that we have denied. So, this is the danger of attacking the companions of the Prophet. However, this doesn't mean that we go to the other extreme. To the other extreme where we now look at them as being infallible. And there is a famous non-hadith, which is quoted in circles regarding them, of Hadi and Nuzum. Mi āyī My companions are like stars. Any of them whom you follow, you will be rightly guided. It
1: sounds
0: very difficult, but it is a publicated tradition, and its meaning is dangerous. Has the meaning of a person companions companions is dangerous, the other extreme of making the companions infallible is also dangerous. Because if we say that they are like stars, any one of them we follow will be rightly guided, it means that they were infallible without mistake. That's what that means. When Imam Malik was asked by his companions, If we follow a Sahabi, in everything that he did, would we be on the correct path? Imam Malik said, no, unless Sahabi was correct, Because the truth is one. And the only one who was infallible is the one in that grave. Imam Malik was in Medina. And he referred to Prophet Muhammad in his days. He was the only one who was guided by revelation. He showed that even when he did make mistakes, these mistakes were permitted by Allah as guidance for the Ummah. To show us to guide us to how to deal with our circumstances, either issues of character or issues of faith. Either issues of character or issues of faith. And I know for some people the idea that Prophet makes made mistakes is somewhat blasphemous. But the fact of the matter is that these mistakes were confirmed in the Quran. These mistakes were confirmed in the Quran. These mistakes are confirmed in the Sunnah. But as I said, they were clarified by Allah. Prophet Muhammad Muhammad, Muhammad, did not make a mistake and it was left. If he made a mistake of judgment, then Allah would clarify that mistake. And his mistakes were not between halal and haram, but between good and better, okay. This is clarified on the say, Prophet Muhammad made mistakes. For example, when Prophet Muhammad on one occasion prayed the last in two raka'as, Prayer was over. Those people who weren't into prayer too much, they quickly ran out the masjid, saying, Alhamdulillah, prayer has been shortened, left. Others questioned, this was not the usual practice of Prophet Muhammad. So one among them asked Prophet Muhammad, Did you, the prayer has it been shortened? Or did you make a mistake? Prophet Muhammad, being a human being, which responded to him, the prayer has not been shortened and I didn't make a mistake, telling him, you are mistaken. However, when he checked with other companions, they confirmed, al the others confirmed to him, look, well, you need pray in two units. But he did it without realizing it. So, he then stood up, and the people who remained in the masjid, who were concerned about salah, they stood up the idol made two more rakats, he made two to do the Saho and completed the salah. So this mistake which he made was one which became guidance for us what to do, because from time to time we made more in two records. And what happened? Now if that wasn't done and explained to us, it would be a problem for us what to do. Also, if Prophet Muhammad S.H. had only told the companions what to do, it would not have registered as, you know, as perfectly as it was in the case when he made the mistake and they l- learned it through practice, exactly. not only through theory, concept, but actually going through the motions of Prophet Muhammad about it, that made it much more focused in their minds to tell others about it. I a mistake, there was guidance for. But this was part Muhammad The companions were not guided by revelation, in the sense that they received revelation. They chose to live in accordance with revelation. What they had learned of the revelation, they chose to do. But, as I said, they were human beings. This is why we can find narration in Sahih Bukhari, others, wherein some companions were found to be practicing muta, temporary marriage, during the reign of Omar, Caliph Omar, Long and he sent a warning to them that they better stop; otherwise, you know, you will have to. Give them something to remember him. the by. Are these companions deliberately practicing mutah, meaning that they knew that Prophet Muhammad telling and they were just doing This is what the Shiites would have us believe, right? They would say, Omar, oh he's the one who stopped the muta. Because they're practicing muta today. Temporary marriage, today. They say, there's evidence there. No, they were practicing it. It was, Omar. Oh one who could have stopped it. However, the reality is that Prophet ﷺ forbade it during the final Hajj and prior to that. But not everybody was present. So the prohibition didn't reach each and every companion. So among them were those who continued to practice it until this information finally caught They were human beings. Our approach to the companions is recognizing them as being the ones who conveyed Islam to us, the best generation. We look at them as being human beings who made errors, but we don't make those errors a justification for speaking ill of them, cursing them. We recognize the sacrifices they made and we live according to their guidance in terms of the interpretation of Islam. Because by saying they were the best of generations, it is saying also that their interpretation of Islam was the best interpretation. This is where the concept of the selah comes from. The term selah, referring back to the interpretation of the companions. Because when we reject their interpretation, and we seek to interpret Islam ourselves, we deviate. We deviate. Because from tafsir to shih, to hadith, without their interpretation, then we will end up with our own religion, as happened to the Christians. They have a book of questionable revelation, which is interpreted according to the whims of each minister or bishop or whatever. It is at the wings of humans to interpret it as they please. For us, the prophetic interpretation has been preserved by the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. And they have conveyed that. To us. There is a further principle which is gained from recognizing them as being the best of generations. Islam is preserved in its purity by recognizing their superiority. Meaning, Prophet Muhammad said, من أحدث في أمرنا Brings anything new into this religion, which is not a part of it, it is rejected by Allah, not acceptable to Allah. So, guidance to protect the religion from innovation, from change, which can happen to the other revelations of Islam prior. The companions practice and clarification helped us to preserve Islam in its purity, meaning that when people begin a practice today, for example, the celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, which according to historical records began nearly 400 years after the time of Prophet Muhammad, in Egypt under the Shiite it, when we challenge this fact, we challenged it by saying Prophet Muhammad did not celebrate his birthday. He did not instruct anyone to celebrate his birthday, nor did his companions celebrate his
1: birth.
0: And if the Prophet ﷺ said they were the best of generations, and they didn't celebrate his birthday, then we can only conclude that it is best not to celebrate his birthday. So their practice of Islam, represents a standard for us to preserve Islam and its purity, they are the conveyors of Islam to us. And even in their various approaches to the implementation of the Islamic teachings, we can find many examples, many sources of guidance and direction for how we as muslims should function today. It is not backward to look back to them. (laughs) This is what Bhagavad Gautam is telling us by referring to them as the best of generations. There is a tendency among people when you look in the past, if look at something backwards, if you want to go back to the past, it's backwards. But no, from the Islamic perspective, Prophet is explained to us that this is the best approach to look back to the
1: death generation.
0: So when you come to issues, for example, of ships over which we differ today, we find a number of different opinions held on different issues. Whether it is in salah, you stand up from rukua. Should you place your hands back on your chest or should you put them by your side? Or oh, it's in terms of sisters, women. Should they cover their faces or should they not cover their faces? Whatever area in which scholars have differed, And there is no clear evidence to confirm one side over the other, where we have no doubt in any, how do we deal with circumstances like this? Because if there is an issue of clear evidence confirming one side, for example, in the case of whether touching a woman breaks wudu, where one school, Shasta his School, says it's breakthrough. You touch a woman, it breakthrough. So you'll see many people who from the Shasta Madhab, they will come to Hajj, they wear a glove. And some you know, practice I noticed in Egypt, among some Egyptians, you know, who shake the hands of women, they will put their hand inside their stove and shake with their hand in the sofa. To avoid uh, breaking their wudu.
1: <laughs> However,
0: other schools, Hanifi schools, for example, hold that touching a woman does nothing. Maliki school holds that if you touch a woman, will desire it <laughs> When you go back to the Sunnah, you find authentic hadith of Sahaba. That he kissed his wife and went to the salah. Finish the argument of whether it breaks wudu or doesn't break wudu. Finish. We have clear hadith which confirms that it didn't break wudu because that is not going to lead the people in salah without wudu. There is other issues, as those that I mentioned, and there are others where. Evidence exists for both sides and not clearly, you know, proving one side over the other. What should we do? We have the example of what is known as fi Bani Huraiva, where Prophet after the battle of the Khandaq, the battle of the French, instructed the companions to go to the fortress of the Kureyra, Jewish Kureyra tribe, which had broken its treaty with Prophet ﷺ and sided along with the pagan, pagan naked. He told them to go to Bani Kureyra and to pray Salatul Asr there, to pray Salatul Asr in the fortress or in the vicinity of the fortress of Dani Kureda, the Kureda On the way, companions set out, main group set out on the way to the fortress. On the way, the time for after came and it became clear that if they continued to go through the fortress, they would miss Salatul Asana. The companions discussed amongst them. Some said, when he said, pray after in Bani Qurayba, meant that we should hurry up and get to Bani Qurayba and pray after there. Others said, he said, pray in Bani Qurayba, so that's what was in it. And what is it? Those who understood him to mean hurry up and get to Bani Kuredo. they stayed back, and prayed for Allah. Those who said, he said, pray Banu Qurra, that's what we're gonna do. They went on to the fortress. after went out and they prayed after after maghrib Prophet Muhammad, when he was informed about it, did not rebuke either of them. However, on his way, he prayed after. He prayed in his time, indicating that those who stayed behind and prayed, those were the ones who were correct. However, because his statement could have been interpreted in two ways, he did not tell the others who went on to buy the prayer of the day there It was a valid. Some went on and acted based according to their understanding. The others acted according to their understanding. When they joined up, they continued the battle and dealt with that is what they, got. they didn't, because of that difference of opinion now, fail to function with each other again after that. Right? They still continue to work together, pray together, everything else after that. But for that one issue, those who felt one thing, is that. Those who felt the other thing, it's the And this has in it guidance to us. That if you feel that it is death when you come out of ruku to put your hands up on each go ahead.
1: To Do it. And don't
0: stop those who prefer to put their hands down by themselves. Those who prefer to put their hands down by those sides, too. So don't stop those who prefer to put their hands on those children.
1: Those
0: sisters who decide to wear niqhab should not look down on sisters who don't wear niqhal. They're covering themselves. But they don't wear niqhal. That is covering the face. The face. you feel it is right, collect according to the evidences, and you do it, teach that to your children, whatever. But don't make that now a source of looking down on others and sticking up to Muslim Similarly, with those who choose not to, they should not also look at the sisters who choose to do so as being extreme. This is not a part of Islam. It's a part of Islam. There evidence for The issue of whether it is compulsory or recommended, this is where the, the issue, there is difference of opinion among leading scholars. And if, you, if they cannot resolve it, then you on the basic level. How can you resolve this with others whose knowledge is limited as your knowledge? So you go according to your understanding, and you work together, because neither of the opinions is outside of Islam. With regard to yes, even Omar. Sallallahu alayhi He was known to imitate the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in everything, little things and big things. Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tied his servant one way, I did Omar tied his servant in way. He wore a ring on his left hand, right hand, he put it on the right hand. He took it off, wore it away, he threw it away. He got a silver ring, he walked away. He walked this way, he said, Omar is the one left. That was Ibn Omar. Abu Dafi didn't do that. Omar didn't do that. Osman didn't do it. Ali didn't do it. These were the leading companions. They didn't do it. But even Omar did. Prophet hmm? Muhammad didn't start it in Omar. No I wanted to do that. It's okay. To do it. This is what he chose for himself. But the majority of the companions were not known to do it. So today, when we look at that principle coming down to the sunnah, we have to make a distinction. Between the things which Prophet Muhammad did as an individual, which he showed personally, and the things which he instructed, which represent guidance for mankind until Yawmul If you choose to do whatever he did, it's quite okay. But don't feel that those who don't do so are not true Muslims you know, where the sunnah dress has a specific meaning, a particular sobe, etc., turban, etc. So if you are not in a and a turban, rather you are not wearing the sunnah, you are not in the sunnah, okay. This is a mistake. The Sunnah represents a principle of dress in terms of the Sharia. is a principle of dress. Not the exact dress of Prophet Muhammad which was his own personal choice. Whatever used to come to him he was. Except if he was given silk, he didn't. Garments of you know, bright orange, yellow, he didn't. Gold, didn't wear certain things he didn't do. His garments he wore above his ankles. And he instructed his companions to wear their garments above their ankles. He instructed them to cover between the navel and the knee. That is the basic requirement. Covering, of course, according to Islamic law, doesn't simply mean having cloth on that region. Because if the cloth is see-through, then it's not considered covering. If the cloth, when you wear it, is tight, so that it hugs your private parts and exposes them, then it's not covered. It exposes so as long as the region which is required to be covered is in accordance with the Islamic principle, then one is dressing in accordance with Sunnah. But it's very important for us, brothers, to think about this and remember that as we do not accept our wives to go outside wearing tights, you know, these aerobic tights, claiming that they are covered, right? We shouldn't do the same, right? Many brothers consider it perfectly okay for themselves to go out in pants which are revealing on their private parts. But they insist that their wives would of Loose. Not tight-fitting and The principle is the principle. It is applicable to them and it is applicable to us. This is why, in those cultures wherein pants were worn of the past, the people wore tops, you know, which came down and covered the region of the thigh to avoid the pants forming the shape of that area which should not be exposed. Or they wore pants which were so baggy, like Turkish pants, so baggy that no matter what you did, it is not going and exposure. So we should learn from the cultures of the past. You know, Muslim cultures that maintain those Islamic principles in dress. Without going to the extreme of holding that the dress must be in only one form, but at the same time, we have to follow the principles. principles which the Prophet Muhammad outlined for us. The opinion of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, according to Islamic law, where they agreed. Is considered a part of Islam, known as ijma. This Muslim scholars have recognized from the earliest of times. They are the best of generations. So the opinions which they all agreed on, meaning that their understanding of revelation was unified on this particular issue then for us that is the best understanding and we should follow it. But where they differed, they had differing opinions, then it is permissible for us to look at the different opinions and the opinions of other scholars who came to them, and the one which appears most applicable to our circumstance, not necessarily the one which is most pleasing to our desires but the one most applicable to our circumstance, we may choose. With regard to the Qur'an, in the related to it, that, in some of the other companions, used to learn the Qur'an ten verses at a time, until they gained the knowledge that was in those verses and acted on it, they would not go on to another set of verses. And as he said, we learn knowledge and its application together. We learn knowledge and its application together. So they have demonstrated to us the proper way in which we should learn the Quran. Not memorizing the whole thing without understanding what is within it, leading us to recite it as faces which are unintelligible. the Qur'an is now recited for barakah, myths are invented, fabrications made about one particular story, somebody related to me recently, about a man who used to commit all kinds of sins, corrupt, not praying. But one day he came in his home and he found the Qur'an on the ground. And he picked it up and put it on the top of the shelf. And Allah forgave his sins and put him in paradise. This monstrous fabrication perpetuates a ritualistic approach to the Qur'an. The Qur'an is kissed because it's rubbed and bodies, hugged, Put in little pockets and tied around the necks of people and waists of children, hung on the walls, placed in high places. But what the Quran is saying, few understand and few live in accordance. They are not benefiting from the example of the best of generations. The last that we have the those who memorize the Quran, Qurishan, coming and reciting for us, finishing two and three Qurans during Ramadan, reciting at ninety miles an hour. So much so that Arabs who understand Arabic will be standing behind him and they're not knowing where the Quran is. You know, afterwards they'll be asking each other, what, what chapter will you reading from? Unintelligible. This is a disservice to the Quran. Yes, uh, Muhammad sallallahu recited the Quran twice in the last year of his life.
1: This, no doubt, will make our prayers much more meaningful
0: something we should strive for. But, in general, the companions learned knowledge and its application together. The students of the companions, those who came after, maintained that tradition. Sufiana Sauri, well-known scholar from the next generation, after that of a companion, had said that when he began to seek knowledge as a youth, by the time he reached puberty, he set out in search of knowledge. He studied in his home until puberty, which puberty then he set out in first of knowledge. When he was setting out, his mother sat him down and said to him, if you write down ten words and your faith has not improved. Check yourself. This was his mother's advice to him. You. You're going out you get this knowledge, and then you write it down. But if you write down ten words, in the course of course the writing down your knowledge, and your faith has not improved, meaning it has no effect on you, then check yourself, question yourself as to your intention. What are you doing out here? What is your purpose? What is your goal? Because the knowledge which is not having any effect, it's cursed knowledge. This is why Prophet Muhammad has said, that among the first people to be thrown in the hellfire will be a scholar. Though on one hand he said the scholars are inheritors of the prophets. On the other hand, he said that among the first people to be thrown in the hellfire will be a scholar. Allah will ask that scholar, What did you do with the knowledge which I gave you? Which I permitted you to learn? The ability which I gave you to gain, to absorb that knowledge. The scholar will say, I taught people for your sake, O Allah. I pass on that knowledge. Allah will say, You didn't teach them for my sake. We taught them. We taught the knowledge so that you would be known as a great scholar. People would admire you and praise you. And it was done. People admired you and praised you. And for so you in this life there is nothing. You will be dragged away on his face and thrown in the hellfire." among the first people flown in the Because that knowledge wasn't for the sake of Allah. He didn't benefit from the knowledge. Because one of the foundational principles of knowledge in Islam is that it must be sincerely for the sake of Allah. And in the of the companions regarding innovation in the religion. Because as I mentioned earlier, the Prophet warned them. And their practice represents a guide for us with regard to innovation. We find in the collection of the Quran when Omar Anhu, went to Abu Bakr, the the Khalifa and informed him that many of those who memorised large portions of the Quran were dying, so they should collect the Quran into one text to preserve it. Abu Bakr's reaction was no. No. How can I do something which the Prophet Muhammad did not do? It was his first reaction. Omar had to sit with him and reason, explain, you know, until Abu Bakr was convinced. He said this was the intent of the Prophet ﷺ. This was Allah's intent for the book. It was to be a book. And when they went to Zaididni Sabbath, who was the one chosen to do the job, and they both presented the idea to him, his first response was, no, exactly the same as Abu Bakr. And they had to sit with him convince him. their attitude. When people bring something new, our attitude should be one of caution. No. We should be very careful about doing things in the name of Islam, in the name of religion, that there is no evidence for In the area of akhlaq, or character, we know Prophet Muhammad sallallahu has told us, la yadkhulul jannata Namam, The one who constantly spreads rumors, gossip, stories about people, will never enter paradise very heavy statement. However, the reality of our lives is that whenever we sit down, instead of thinking to talk about Islam and dawah you know, different things which are beneficial, family matters, advising each other what the watal haq, the al albul trouble, instead of doing these things she should be speaking. Muslims sit down and start to talk about other people. Do you know, so and so. He was doing this and that. Do you know so and so? She was saying this and doing that and this is the main topic of conversation. People's business. gossip. What was the way of the companions. At the time of Hadith when a huge lie was spread about Aisha, wife of the Prophet Muhammad, and one of the companions, that they had involved themselves in adultery and fornication, and it spread by the hypocrites around Medina. And some believers got involved male and female in spreading these rumors. We have the example of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. When Abu Ayyub al-Ansari heard this story, his wife heard the story, they sat down together. And Abu Ayyub said to his wife. If you heard this about me,
1: would you believe it?
0: She said no. And she asked him, if you heard that about me, would you believe it? And he said no. But he said, Aisha is better than me. Safwan Sahabi is better than me. So how can we believe it? we thinking the best about others. This is the Islamic way. This was the character which was expressed by the companions. Thinking good about others. Somebody comes and tells you a story about something. Okay. Don't accept it. Stop that. Don't sit and listen to it, though you don't agree. Because if you sit and listen, you are a part of it. And it puts a doubt in your heart. So when somebody else comes with another story like that, then you are going to give it credit, and You will start talking about it. Stop it. Stop the people from doing it. Think the best about your brothers Unless evidence comes to the contrary. So in summary, Prophet Muhammad instructed us to follow his sunnah and the sunnah of the righteous caliphs who came after him. He identified his generation as the best of generations, companions as the best. They are the guides for us. We shouldn't go overboard in the sense of claiming for them infallibility because they were fallible. But as a whole, as a totality, they represent the guide for us in all aspects of Islam. They are the ones who convey to us the Sunnah and the Quran. And they are the ones who convey to us the interpretation of the Sunnah and the Quran. They were the best of generations. And they to the best of examples. As Muslims, we should never engage in cursing them, speaking ill of them, but instead we should follow their advice, their lessons, their guidance, and Allah will be pleased with us. As Allah said in the Quran that he is pleased with those who gave their allegiance. They ridwan the allegiance to Prophet Muhammad. Allah is pleased with them. And for us to be displeased with those whom Allah is pleased with represents deficiency of faith. By of faith is to love those whom Allah loves and to hate those whom Allah hates. We cannot love those whom Allah hates or hate those whom Allah loves. If so, something is wrong with us. InshaAllah, you all have an opportunity now to ask questions concerning our topic the best of generations. just try and choose the ones which are the biggest, relevant, and stay closest to the topic. we are a woman that's non mahram who you can marry, Break your wudu. No. The point of touching a woman, of course, what we're talking about here is something accidental. Because touching a woman in general, according to Islamic law, is something prohibited. Someone, in authentic narration, said that it would be better that one have an iron spike driven into his head than to touch a woman we he can melt. So let us not have any mistake when we are talking about the sick issue here of touching a woman. Right? This is something accidental we are Accidentally touching a woman whether she is mahram, whether you are mahram for her or not, it doesn't change the issue. Since we know that the best of generations is the generation of the Prophet Muhammad and the two generations after them, when we try to follow their lifestyles like sleeping on the floor and mats as opposed to high beds, this is regarded as being extreme. Please comment on this. And this is from the sisters, and their husbands wants to sleep on beds instead of sleeping on mats on the floor. Or from the brothers. And their wives want to sleep on beds instead of sleeping on the mats on the floor. Let us say that Islam does not insist on sleeping on the floor. Okay? It is perfectly legitimate to sleep on a bed. Yes, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam slept on a mat which was made of palm fronds, you know, thin covering, so much so that when he got up, the impressions of the sponsor could be seen in his arm and his side. And Omar had said to him, you know, can't we get something more comfortable for you Rasulullah? And R.S. rejected it. He said, you know, he had no need of it in his life. Okay. But he did not instruct us. The other companions did not do as he did. Islam does not require of us that we torture ourselves. Okay, Meaning that, yes, with difficulties come the reward. But it doesn't mean that we have to create difficulties for ourselves. You know, this is not the Islamic way. You know, as, as Abu Bakr has said, it is better, in his view he felt, it is better that I avoid a calamity, right? And thank Allah that I avoided it, that I fall into a calamity and be patient. Right. It's a nice concept, you know. This is Abu Bakr. It's better that I avoid a calamity, avoid a time of difficulty, and thank Allah that it didn't happen to me. Then I prefer this, this is Abu Bakr I prefer this than to fall into a calamity and be patient. Being patient in the time of calamity builds the faith. But we don't seek calamity. Allah says, don't wish to meet the enemy. That is a man now, al Don't wish to meet the enemy. But if you meet them, stand firm. Since it's Islam, so, Prophet Whenever he was given the choice between two things, both halal, he chose the easier of the two. This was his way. This was his sunnah. Whenever given the choice between two halal things, people sometimes just hear that. Whenever he was given the choice between two things, he chose the easier. No! Not two things, two halal things. Right? You know, the translation can mislead. People think you have a choice between halal and haram and he chose the haram. No! When he had a choice between two halal things, he chose the easier of the two. So if you have a choice between sleeping on the ground on a mat and sleeping on the bed, there's no harm in choosing to sleep on the bed. No harm. Okay. But if you personally prefer to sleep on the ground, then there's no harm for you. But remember the principle if you have a wife, or a sister has a husband, you know, if you want to sleep on the math, do it in your spare time, you know, don't make life difficult for others so that you can fulfill what you desire. Huh? This is part of the Muslim's concern for his brother and sister Muslim, huh? you
1: know,
0: There are times when you have spare time, whatever, your wife is visiting her parents, you know, she's staying overnight, whatever, that night, okay, go on the ground, sleep on the ground. You travel with the brothers, everybody else is carrying a sponge mat, you want to just carry a piece of cloth, sleep on the ground, okay. But when you're home, the bed is there, you know, don't make it difficult for your husband or your wife. This would be my advice. Wawiya was a companion of the Prophet. He selected his son Yazid, the next Amir, in spite of the strong opposition from grand the grandson of the Prophet. What about the hypocrites hypocrites among the companions? Well, two things. Mawiyah was a human being who made certain choices for himself, if he had. He ended up in a struggle with Ali, who was the Khalifa, Khalifa, the Khalif, and it is understood by the majority that he was in a mistake at that time. But it was not a deliberate mistake where he was seeking power, you know, as some people try to put it that this was the cunning and slime wawiya, right? This is how you read some books, you know, and this is why in the arbitration they have these tricks and you know. This no, this is distortion. This is a distorted view. Similarly, the issue concerning appointing his son, he made it in jihad in the circumstance that there was fitna, difficulties which existed in order to minimize the fitna of the time he chose to appoint his son. There are some who disagree. And perhaps we may look back at this time, from this time, and feel that this was not the better choice, but the principle of a son following a father as a ruler is not something which is rejected in Islam, because we know that Allah designated among His prophets, kings. Rulers whose sons followed them in rule. If this was evil, it would not, Allah Taala would not have made the Prophet's example. So, a son of a ruler following a ruler in and of itself is not evil. What is evil is when the rule is not in accordance with the rule of Allah. So if the ruler rules in accordance with the rule of the law, whether his father was also a ruler or not, does not make his rule illegitimate by itself. As to the hypocrites, these are generally not included among the companions. you don't consider them as companions of the Prophet so In start those who were believers, not known to have been hypocrites. When we speak of the companions who are the best of generations, so the statement is a general statement. Not included among them were those who claimed to have been companions, who pretended to be companions, followers of Prophet, but who were in fact disbelievers in their hearts.
1: So but not
0: on the what? The word of Muawiyah. So Prophet ﷺ designated Muawiyah to be among those who will write down the Qur'an. You see, for Prophet ﷺ to have chosen him to be among the scribes writing down the Qur'an. And Allah knows the future. Of course Prophet didn't know the future. Allah knows the future. If Muawiyah rajalau anhu was to be a hypocrite, was to have been you know, an enemy of Islam, then Allah would not have allowed to give him such a noble and responsible position. The Qur'an which is in our hands is part of the work in terms of conveyance of that Qur'an to us of the companion Muawiyah And of course there are many other things concerning His life, the hadith which are narrated, uh, the deeds which he did for the sake of Islam, which none can deny. We have to be very careful of a lot of the material which is around, translated especially into English and this. You know, much of the things translated by Amir, Ali is one of the favorite translators of history, you know, who was Shiite, you know, and promoting the Shiite views of Muawiyah and others to be corrupt, etc. You know, uh, we have to be very careful when we look back at the history, that the information that we are reading is in fact authentic information, you know, narrated by through reliable sources. What if somebody says that some of the later generations might be more knowledgeable or better than the Sahaba? That means they were men and we are men also. It is true that some people from the generations after the Sahaba were more knowledgeable than the Sahaba. Some among them, because when the when the statement is made concerning the generation, it's the generation as a whole, not each and every individual. No, there were some among the Sahada students of the Sahaba who were more knowledgeable than many of the Sahaba. is real. So, this when we're talking about a general ruling, we're not talking about each individual. We're talking about the generation as a whole. And this is why Prophet ﷺ even told the Sahaba that there would come a time, that there would be some people whose deeds would be one of their deeds would be equivalent to ten of the deeds of the Sahaba. Speaking about their faith in such glowing terms, Sahaba was quite surprised. But there's indication, obviously, that in times to come there will be some people, as individuals, who may have greater deeds than them, that may have greater faith than some among the Sahaba. There are some individuals among the Sahaba that is real. Of course, we have some groups of people, you know, who take this hadith and try to use it to promote the idea of the saints, right? You know. So this is why you know we can now recognize you know, so-and-so as a saint and this one is a saint and so on. so this This is known to Allah. Allah knows and Allah judges. On the day of judgment, these things will become clear. In this life we cannot judge. That is clear from the sunnah of Muhammad sallallahu Where companions were speaking of other companions, people who were amongst them, who died as martyrs, as being martyrs, going to paradise <laughs> correcting them, in some cases and saying so and going to hell, because there were things that they were doing which the rest of the companions didn't know about. And the number of hadith of Muhammad to that effect. us that ultimately we cannot judge in the later generation who is what in terms of faith. We can judge some outer action, you know, we say so-and-so is a believer, so-and-so we pray, we pray our a his belief, we hope so-and-so dies as a believer. We cannot bear witness and say so-and-so is going to paradise. No. We don't have that authority. Of putting the Quran in one volume through the collection is an act of good bid'ah. Why didn't the Prophet Muhammad order it? Or the science of categorizing hadith? If we use it in the linguistic term, yes, this is bid'ah, hasana. In the linguistic meaning. But to say it was an innovation in religion, no. It was not an innovation in religion. Prophet Muhammad wasallam instructed people to write the material down. The intent behind it is its preservation. Putting it together into one text to ensure its preservation is only fulfilling the intent of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam The issue of why the Prophet Muhammad wasallam didn't order it because of the fact that the revelation continued right up until the last moments of his life. And the materials on which they were writing was of limited uh, availability. They were writing on a variety of different sources. And they were concerned with trying to memorize it and preserve it in that way also. So there are a number of different factors which made it not. Uh, practical to strive to try to write it down in one single text during the lifetime of the Prophet but as the is understood that was the intent, so it was completed within a year after his
1: death.
0: Is the act of having mihrab in masjid Bidah, who started it and why? No, the, uh, the putting of a mihrab in a masjid, and it was added, the mihrab is that prayer niche. The Imam stands as a curve. Uh, area in which he stands in. The architect, a number of years after the time of Prophet sallāṁ, introduced the niche and the dome for practical purposes. The niche was to increase the, to amplify the sound. You know, this was, this concave, Uh, structure amplifies the sound for those behind. If you speak it to a wall and you speak to a curved surface, you'll find that those standing behind can hear better. It amplifies the sound because it redirects the sound directly behind. So sound waves, you know, are reflected. So if you can reflect them backwards straight behind to the people behind, then you increase their ability to hear. So it was for that purpose. Meaning that if we built a masjid today without a mihrab, because we now have amplifiers, then it's no problem. It's not necessary. Where people think that it is a religious structure, where it is, that it is a religious structure, and the dome was to increase the ventilation within the masjid, it also amplifies the sounds. And any of you walk on a dome and you say something, you hear the sound is louder. It helps to amplify the sound and increase the ventilation. Whereas now we have uh, amplifiers, we have air conditioning. Right? If a person feels that in building the masjid, I must put in this mihrab, I must put in this dome, otherwise it is not a masjid, then that person has is fallen. Is fallen into bidah. The then for that person, the mihrab and the dome is bidah the because they're giving it, giving it. Religious sanction that is a part of the religion which it is not. And if we consider when we're building, it's a very important point actually for us in North America and Muslims in general. When we know that the Prophet said that the worst money that is spent is on building, the worst money spent is on building, the decoration of buildings different narration talking about that and in the future, how people will be competing with each other in their buildings, you know, even in, in the masjid. We have a limited amount of money. To put a dome on the masjid, a dome which we don't need, and a minaret, I mean you see the cost of putting up a minaret, you know, can cost almost as much as the masjid itself and the dome, right the price for the dome and the minaret, can cost as much as the masjid itself. In my view, it is sinful to put it on there, because that money would be better spent expanding the size of the masjid, putting classrooms, making schools, forever, rather than just adorning that building putting symbols which are not primarily Islamic symbols, but which have come to be by custom to be known as Islamic symbols. We should go back to the simplicity of building, because the way of the Prophet, and his companions, what Islam teaches is simplicity. I know when, we, when the, people hold up the architecture of Andalus, see when they want to show Islamic architecture. They show up Andalus, you know, where you see people have got these intricate carvings on the walls and, you know, all this stuff. You know, the Muslim artist. This guy spent ten years carving the walls. And it's held up, you know. This is not something pleasing to Allah. Really. Like Michelangelo in the Sistine Chow, you know, painting on his back here, the picture of God creating Adam. This is not from Islam. That kind of energy is wasted energy. The decoration of buildings like this Islam promotes simplicity. That time and energy better used in building more buildings that we need for, you know, public service or whatever, rather than just merely decorating. That is like wasted money. I know in Muslim tradition today, masjid you know, it's usually they've got all kinds of paintings and writings and tiles and all this kind of stuff. That adds to the cost. And it is Islam. Really. Though the intention, you know, people, so people into the art, of course they will get their backs riled up, they don't like to hear it. You no, know, this Islamic art, you know, we should, be, we should be pleasing to Allah. Allah is beautiful, He likes beautiful, you know. <laughs> really, let's not take this hadith out by itself. Let's not take the hadith out by itself. Look at Islam as a whole. Islam invites the simplicity. Going to the masjid, you shouldn't be looking at all the walls of the chandeliers and the ditch. Oh, wow! No, you come in here to worship Allah. Not to be taken out by all this architectural wonders. To worship Allah. The simpler it is, like the prayer rugs that we're praying on, you know all these pictures and colors and all you're looking at prayer, and you start to see things, you know, things start to move and, no, <laughs> oh, this is that this, this is not pleasing to Allah. Better you take a prayer around which is just train one color, no designs, it's a simple, It's like a towel, lay it down in prayer. That's it. so when he prayed, he had clothes with, you know, had lines in it, distracting, he took it off, not to distract, you see, our prayer we try to avoid distraction. So the mass seems to be a, a place for for uh, contemplation, you know, and reflection on Allah, reading the Quran, be concerning ibadah, you know, not a museum of, of modern art, you know, we're coming in and... You know, Utilitarian Islamic architecture, as you said, rather saying that when we follow Islamic principles in organizing our home, you know, where you're not coming in and you're right into the the, the essence of your household, you know, uh, no, you have an inner, uh, an outer area where people guests can come and sit, and they're not inside your house and what is going on inside your house, and you know, you're not able to maintain certain separation within your house. This is following Islamic principles in, in the bathrooms and how they're set up and all these things. This is our Islamic architecture at work serving uh, Islam as opposed to these other, you know, excesses that have appeared. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
0: Our brother is raising the question of uh, finding a hadith which contradicts the ruling of a scholar. If we look at evidences presented by both sides and are hadith which support one side and none to support the other side, then it is perfectly legitimate to consider the side which is supported by the hadith to be more authentic. However, I do agree with you in terms of caution that we cannot simply take up a hadith not knowing all of the hadith on the subject and then use it to draw conclusions and say, well, this is wrong, this is right, and everything else. I mean, we, we, we can look at that hadith as used by other scholars, right, and look at the arguments of both sides and say, okay, I, I feel this is more correct because it is supported by the hadith. Okay, it's uh, time for Salatul Asr. So, I'd
1: like to conclude. Subhanakallahum allahu alhamdulillah.